Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, we are shown how we are made right with God through faith in Christ, and that true faith that brings us to God is a repentant faith. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Justified, Part 3. If you've not been able to be with us thus far, then as we read through this, some of this can seem a bit complex, uh, some words you don't use in your everyday conversation and such. So here's a little bit of what to look for. We've spent our time making sense of the text, and now we're kind of going through slowly each part of it and each truth. But look for this as we're reading through. The main message here is on this biblical word called justification. This being made right with God, God forgiving our sins and bringing us to be right with him. And he's made this possible through the propitiation that Jesus has offered. That is the satisfying of the anger and the wrath of the father for sins. Jesus gave his life in order to satisfy the wrath of God for all of those who come to faith in Christ. So watch how this is being shown here. We'll read 21 to 28, and then we'll spend some time working through it after we pray. So Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Please bow with me and let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, I want to sincerely ask that in this time, you will give us grace to understand, to see, to just intellectually comprehend what we're looking at, that you give us the ability to to think deeply and to even just the, the grace to be able to stay on task, pay attention and not our minds be wandering in other places, but to follow the logic and argument you're laying out here. But God, we pray much deeper than that. We pray that your truth brings change. God, you you tell us that if we get this, we will never be the same. And that for those who have studied this previously, that going deeper in the understanding of these things will form us in the image of Christ, that our worship will be stirred, our zeal will be stirred. You'll make us holy. You'll send us out as your people to work and labor and share the gospel and live in a way that pleases you. So God, this is what we ask. We, we do not ask to simply sit here and be entertained by an enjoyable time of Bible study. God, we long to be prepared as soldiers. So God, please accomplish that. Bring us to worship. Bring us to rejoice your sons and daughters. God, I pray that you show them your love. Stir them to amazement and gratitude that you would save us. Also convict us where we need it. But God, I pray any in the room who right now have not passed from death to life, but are still living in the realm of death to you, and their destiny is that of hell, God, we ask, make this the day that they are awakened, that whatever hurdles to faith have been there, that today's the day you remove them and you bring them into your kingdom. Please, God, bring that about. Please send us your Holy Spirit. If you do not, 
we will not accomplish what's needed here. So please give grace. Help me to preach. Help all of us to worship by receiving your word. We pray these things through Christ. Amen. Recently, I got to spend some time with a young man who's begun training for ministry. And it's his intention, he believes, to eventually head to the mission field. He was telling me his story and he was telling me how he was raised in a Christian home, Christian upbringing, Christian influence, Christian church, Christian teaching, etc., etc. But when he communicated to his parents that he was going to be leaving the career path that he was on, a career path which was set to make some pretty good money, according to earthly standards, and heading to the nations with the gospel, his father, normally a quiet and reserved and introverted man, actually lost his temper in a, in a public restaurant and yelled at his son there in front of other people. His father chastised him for the, the irresponsibility of leaving good money, leaving the secure path, bringing his wife to live in less than ideal conditions. Don't you think Jesus wants you to have a, a good and secure life? <coughs> this father's sentiments really represents a massive segment of American Christianity, a version of Christianity that has been distorted away from the truth, a religion which is all about moral teachings which help you to live a, a happy, orderly, decent, secure life now. And really, friends, for most, this is what they mean by Christianity. As you have conversations and, and someone might mention that they are a Christian, oftentimes what they mean is they are adherents to a religion which, which promotes moralism. This kind of idea that the Bible is really just about helping you to get order now. Really just trying to help you get financially secure now. Ha have all these little tidbits that are thrown out there, learning how to work hard, stay in school, get a good job, you know, pay, pay things off, save money, all of these little things. Listen, listen to me, things that are not necessarily contradiction to Scripture, just not what Christianity is, not what the heart of what it is all of this is about. Certainly we would affirm that the Bible does teach a life of obedience, which oftentimes does lead to an orderly life and security. But that's not what Christianity is. And the Christ who brought the gospel in the calling to live out a life that flows from the gospel oftentimes calls us to leave earthly security, leave earthly peace, Walk into danger, walk into risk, choose difficulty. While the Bible teaches morals, this is not what Christianity is. Prince, Christianity is the gospel. This message that God calls the good news. How mankind who has broken the law of God can be brought to God brought to peace, made right with the living God, receive eternal life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel life then calls us to live in response to this. But Christianity doesn't find its end in security here. It finds its end in security there. The big question of Christianity, the big question of the gospel is, how can sinful humans be made right with the living God so that they can live forever in enjoyment with Him? This is what the gospel is about. And in these eight verses that we've been Studying through, we're seeing God explain the hows behind that. We're seeing him show how it is that God has brought this about. We say things like, we have eternal life through Christ, but how? What does it mean that in Jesus we can have access to God? If Jesus died and rose again in as, as a substitute for sinners, then, then does that mean that every soul on the earth gets this? Well, five minutes of Bible reading will show you that's not the case. 
But if that's the case, then how do I have this? And then to apply this to you and I, Christian, who you are already confident that you're in him, how do you know you have any security tomorrow? What assurance do you have that God is going to keep his promises? How do you know that as you continue to go, that it's going to be okay? What hope do you have? All of this is answered by the hows behind justification. So we've mentioned as we've begun studying through this text, let me give just the, the briefest little review to jog your memory. The central idea of this passage is justification before God is available to you from God. And then we mentioned there are 11 truths that this passage says about that. We looked at the very first one last Sunday that, that the definition of what justification is, it is God declaring his people to be righteous. The one who comes to faith in Christ, God declares you to be not guilty right in his sight. But you can continue to kind of look through those points there. Today, the goal is to make our way from, verse, or from points two through seven there. So making our way through six more of these points. But I want you to notice this, and this is going to kind of be the key for how we study today. As you look at points two, three, four, five, six, and seven, you'll notice this. All of them hinge on one. All of them hinge on one. If point number three is not true, then none of the rest of them can be true. If point number three is true then it's very natural that all of the rest of them are true. Point number three is this justification comes to you by faith, not by works, by faith. It's a gift of God's grace, not by your merit, not by your earning it, not by you paying for it. A gift of grace, which is received by laying hold of Christ by faith, by receiving Christ by faith. If that one is true, then all of the rest of them are all connected to this. So today we're going to spend our time primarily looking at this truth right here. The aspect that justification is received by faith. This being made right with God, this being saved, it comes by faith. So let me just read them off to you. So we have them there. Point number two is that this justification is available apart from works. Number three, this justification is available through faith alone. Number four, this justification is available through Christ alone. Putting three and four together, it is faith in Christ. Number five, this justification is available to all. Number six, this justification is needed by all. Number seven, this justification is available as a gift of grace. So let me show you kind of how we're going to walk through this. Primarily looking at point number three. I want to, I want to divide today uh, into three parts. We're going to, number one, look briefly. We're going to define faith. Spend just a little bit of time kind of thinking about what faith is. Letter B will be we're going to spend some time looking at what faith is not. That's actually a really critical study from the scripture to see what saving faith is, is not. There's so much misunderstanding. And then thirdly, we're going to come back then and look at the characteristics then of true saving faith, coming to the end and summing up what it'll be. So there'll be A, B, and C if you're keeping notes, even though you have no room on your bulletin there. A, B, and C, we'll walk through there. Let's begin with letter A here, the definition of faith. Let me just kind of briefly show you in the text where, where we get this. It's one of my goals every single Sunday, every single sermon, that after we're done, if somebody asks you, what did, what did you learn today? You can point them to the scripture to show exactly what we looked at, that this comes out of the text, that, that, that this is never about, don't ever come away thinking that what's being shared here is the pastor's philosophy or opinions. This isn't the time for that. When we come to seek God, when we come together as the church body to, to, to worship and draw to him, this isn't the time for opinion. I have opinions. They don't, they don't, that, that now's not the time for them. The whole point is that we come to the word of God and we drink out of it what God has for us. Not that we're pouring our thoughts into it, 
coming to it with preconceived ideas and trying to see if we can get it to fit into what we think. No, no, no. We come and we draw out of the scriptures what is said there. So I want to show you from the text where we draw these points that are there. In verse 21, it says, but now apart from the law, apart from the law of God, apart from obedience to God, the righteousness of God is offered to you. Our point number two there is that this is available, this righteousness, this right standing with God, this being declared not guilty, it is available apart from works. And then point number three is that this justification is available by faith. Faith is the decisive response. It is that decisive response that is the critical element that then makes us right with God. You have to understand God could have done this any way he wanted to. God could have made it that you would be justified when you came to finally love God. He could have done that. He's the sovereign one. He chose faith. Faith is the decisive response that brings us to God. That first turning of a friendly heart towards him. Well, see if you agree with that conclusion from the text here. Look at verse 22. says that this righteousness of God is available through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who, what? Believe. Verse 25, this propitiation, it is in his blood through faith. Verse 27, where then is boasting? Does boasting and bragging and high self-estimation have a place in Christianity? It does not. But does it make sense that if you saved yourself by how good you could be, you really do have a reason to boast over other people. If you were saved and other people were not because you're so good, you would have something over others. But boasting has no place in Christianity. Why? Because you have not worked to receive your salvation. The whole point of faith is receiving works done for you by another. You are not the glorious one. Faith is simply receiving. Somebody else is offering the gift. You just have your hands to receive the gift. Faith is like the hole in the ground that receives the tree that's planted. Nobody thinks, wow, what an amazing hole. That's not the point. The point is the living activity of the, of the tree that is there. The hole just simply receives it. Where then is boasting? It has no place in Christianity. And then verse 28, like if, if verse 28 doesn't, doesn't convince you, listen to me very carefully, you're not trying. <laughs> verse 28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Chapter four will then pick this up and it will continue to argue in order to prove that this is by faith, even showing that this has been the case even from the Old Testament. So there it is in the text. Let's spend a little bit of time, a little bit of time, defining what true saving faith is. Uh, to do that, let me, let me invite you to join to Hebrews chapter 11 for a moment. I love the fact that God in the scriptures oftentimes defines words for us so we don't have to try to. Hebrews 11, find verse 1. I'm going to go very quickly because I have a lot to cover today. Verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There's a very basic definition of faith, but he goes further in verse 6. Really critical to going further to understanding true saving faith. Verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Faith is to believe God's existence, of course. But we've seen scripture show that one's real obvious. Romans 1 said, everybody knows that. Like deep down, there really is no such thing as a true atheist. Everybody knows it's there. The harder part of what true saving faith is, is to trust God. He who comes to him must believe that he is, of course, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him to trust God. See friends, faith is not taking blind guesses. When the world mocks faith, when they mock religion, 
They always kind of explain it like faith is taking blind guesses into the unknown. They will oftentimes say religion is man trying to take a guess at to what God is like. That's not what faith is. And I think that even if you just use reason, you could come to that conclusion. Skeptics think of faith like this. I have something in my hand. What is it? Well, you don't know. You would just be guessing that it is there. That's not what faith is. But faith is this. I'm telling you how I have a small lighter in my hand. You can't see it, but I'm telling you that it's there. Do you believe me? Your faith in whether or not you believe me, look, it is there, it's true. Your faith in whether you believe me is based on whether or not you trust my integrity. You, you trust my character. And so listen to me very carefully, friends. The cosmos reveals in hundreds of ways. Your creator reveals himself to you in more than a hundred ways. The Bible is the word from your creator. The Bible is, the word of God is self-authenticating. Meaning this, if you read it, it shows itself to be true. The internal witness of your conscience is crying out inside of you as you are interacting with the words of God. This is real. This, this is real. God is expressing himself, revealing himself to you. If someone were to ask me, what, what do you believe is, why do you believe Christianity or what is the greatest reason or what is the root reason? I, I would respond that there are no less than a hundred ways of why I am convinced of it. I'm, I'm convinced that in the creative world around us, just simply the existence of beauty. You go watch a beehive. God is revealing himself, the handiwork of the creator. The glory of the creator is being shown. God reveals himself in things like love and marriage and sex and delight in, in, in little babies. God reveals himself in hundreds of little ways, any one of which are enough in themselves. Friends, I, I submit to you the existence of beauty alone. Just take one of those 100. One thing is enough itself for the creator to reveal himself to you. And if the creator reveals himself to you and has spoken a word, then to recognize that word. But if you ask me, what is the root reason? What is the biggest one? I, I would say this. When I read the scriptures, I am convinced that I am engaging with the word of the living God. That the creator is addressing his creatures now, I, I get it that the skeptic would say, well, that's subjective, but that's, that's subjective. That's not objective. All right, well, let me, let me turn that around a little bit. You believe, skeptic, that reason and empirical evidence are the only way to decide reality. Let me ask you to do this. Use empirical evidence to prove to me that empirical evidence is the way to decide reality. Do you see what's just happening there? Their worldview just crumbles. The foundation from which they say, this is the only way you can decide something. You have to see it or there has to be an evidence that you can touch with your hands. We'll use evidence you can touch to prove that to me. You can't do it. It crumbles. And one of the things that we have to point out to skeptics and naturalists and atheists is also this right well, th this as well. You are doing the exact thing that you accuse Christians of being wrong about. You exert faith on an everyday basis. You make a thousand assumptions, naturalist. You make a thousand assumptions and exert faith and trust in ways that you're not being honest about. You have faith that the evidence you see is trustworthy. Where do you get your confidence? You have faith that those who present the evidence to you, that they themselves have got it right. I, I've still yet never met the skeptic who, who only believes the tests they do with their own hands. They are reading about it. They are hearing about it. They are listening to lectures. You have faith that the ones who have conducted these supposed things that you're talking about are trustworthy, that they're presenting it accurately, and that they're able to control every single factor in how they came to their conclusions. You have faith that you're actually able to measure the sound waves echoing through space and control every factor that leads you to the exact accurate conclusion of how old the universe is. There's an awful lot of assumptions in that. There are just thousands of assumptions made all the time. Uh, and, and even this often needs to be pointed out. Even the skeptic oftentimes denies evidence when it doesn't line up 
with their preconceived beliefs that they decided before they heard the evidence. Here's a scientific example. Did you know there are 45 different ways to date the age of the earth? Every single one of those methods gives a different answer. So why do you believe the one that you believe? Well, a smart guy told me. Why did he pick that number? Because it matches the system that is already preconceived. Now, now, now by the way, I don't want to imply in any way that like the age of the earth is a die to a, a hill to die on that kind of thing that this makes or breaks. Christianity. I don't believe that at all. But I do sometimes snicker when sometimes people think that that's sort of something that discounts the Bible. I have to snicker and think, look at all the faith you're exerting and you won't be honest about the faith that you're trusting an awful lot of things beyond yourself. You have placed your trust in human ability and human intelligence rather than the creator who reveals himself in more than a hundred ways and his evidence is there in front of you every single day but you are denying and you are closing your eyes to that evidence but choosing to believe other evidence as the christian we see our creator reveal himself to us he has spoken he has told us things we cannot see we trust him so that's what faith is. But now let's, let's build on that understanding. The next, next thing, still under letter number A here that I want to show to you. The Bible tells us that justification, this being made right with God, this being saved comes by faith in Christ, trust in Christ. That's not just a Baptist thing, not just a Protestant thing. I always want to make that clear. That's not just our particular opinion. You're having to do some things to the word of God as you read Romans 3 and some of these other places. If you come to any other conclusion than that, you're doing something to break and twist the word of God there. I showed you in Romans 3, but let's, let's leave Romans. Let me, let me take you to some other places. There are just too many to see specifically. And let me also tell you this. There is only one place in all of the Bible that seems to say something different. There's only one place in the whole Bible that seems to say something other than faith alone. It was my intention to bring you there today, but we just can't study everything every Sunday and eventually the nursery workers would be tied up by the hooligans back there. So there's only so much time that we can give to these kinds of things. But there is this mountain full of passages, verses. Listen to me, some chapters of the Bible, the whole point of the whole chapter, like Romans 4, is to argue that justification comes by faith. Some of the books of the Bible, like the book of John, it's a theme that runs through the whole book. It's one of his intentions in writing to show that salvation comes by faith. We have this mountain full of verses that show this. And, and it's possible that someone could sit there and think, oh, all right, I believe you, but what does it matter? Like in the end, if we're all just trying to be good, then who cares how we're saved? Well, this is what I want to tell you. First of all, apparently it does matter because God spends about 10 hours in the scripture arguing and proving and showing you that it comes by faith and then warning passages that tell us if you get this wrong, you're in spiritual danger. We saw the end of chapter 9 of Romans and the beginning of chapter 10 last Sunday that show this. If you get this wrong, you can lose your soul. So does it matter? You better believe it does. When God says something matters, that's kind of the definition that it does matter. Even if you think it ought not to. Even if some say, well, I just think it should all just be okay. You don't decide reality. The creating God does. He shows us this matters. You got to get this right. We got to see the foundations here. Let me take you to just one place that I think makes it crystal clear. John chapter three for a moment. I'm going to get there and read fast so that we can make it through. John chapter three, familiar passage to you. Find verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. Watch the next part though. He who does not believe has been judged already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That just makes things crystal clear. There is another verse in this chapter I want to show you, though. Jump to verse 36, an important verse. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see the consistent message there showing by faith, by faith, believe on the Lord Jesus. Eternal life comes to you uh, in this way. But it is also important that we read verses like verse 36. Did you see that? He who believes in the son has eternal life. He who does not obey the son. What is it there, pastor? It said obedience. Yeah, but read it again. It doesn't say eternal life comes by obedience. Eternal life comes by faith. But what it is declaring is the same message that the rest of the scriptures show this as well. Your obedience to God shows your faith so that we can confidently say, I confidently say to something, I ask you to hear very carefully. If you are living a life that does not obey Jesus, I can confidently tell you, you do not have eternal life. But that's not because obedience saves you. Faith saves you. But here's what the Bible says. True faith is going to work. True faith is never by itself. True faith is always going to express itself in good deeds, in a life of obedience, so that we can confidently say to someone, someone is living in disobedience to God. Someone is living an unrepentant life. We say to them, you can't be saved. Your life is showing that you're not. They might argue, but I have faith. And what we would argue is the Bible shows your faith is of a false nature. It is not true and saving faith. Now more on that here in just a moment. Let me show you just one more place. John chapter five, verse 24. I just love it when things are just spelled out so clearly. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. I, I love how the apostle John, led by the Holy Spirit, but I love how he makes sure to include some of those times where Jesus explained the gospel just really clearly. Like the Bible has deep and complex passages, like Romans 3, but there are also these places, there are these times where Jesus explained the gospel so simply, he wanted the children in the crowd to get it. I just imagine Jesus looking at these little ones going, do you want to have eternal life? then believe in me. Oh, Christian, rejoice in that. Rejoice in the simplicity. Rejoice in the simplicity and the kindness of God that he has made eternal life available, that the, that the five-year-old little girl may be living in a world of misery, can hear about Jesus, believe, and be saved. Rejoice in that, Christian. Rejoice in the grace of God that the thief on the cross had hope. Rejoice, Christian, that the people that you love and you're praying for them to be saved and right now they might have a cold, stony heart. Before the day is over, Jesus can claim them for himself. If they believe, rejoice in the simplicity of God making salvation available by faith. Aren't you so glad it's not based on your performance? I know I would miss that. I know I would not live up. And if my salvation depended on me keeping it by good works, I'm messing that up every time. Rejoice in the simplicity and the assurance that is there. But I imagine that some could think at this point, well, pastor, if it's this simple, then why are you all the time saying such scary things? <laughs> Here's why I say scary things. It's because the Bible says scary things, friends. There are two truths that exist together. They're not contradictory to each other, but there are two truths that exist together. There is the simple truth, salvation by faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's Acts 16. Simple truth. But there is also a truth that exists at the same time of things like this. Listen to 1 John 1, 6. Just let your ears hear it. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Listen to the book of James. Fellowship with the world, or excuse me, friendship with the world is enmity with God, being enemies with God. 
Listen to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. While the simple truth of justification by faith exists, there is another truth that exists as well, that there is such a thing as false faith. And as I say these things, I want to make this clear as well. The reason why we talk about the warnings as often as we do is because the warnings are there really often. But I also want to make sure that we understand this. The intention of the Bible and the intention of the preaching as we look at warnings and scary things is not to try to cause panic in sons and daughters of God. No, understand this. The Bible says, make your calling and election sure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves and see this. You are in Christ. Unless. You fail the test. God wants you to have assurance. But what God doesn't want is for the unconverted to have assurance. You who have trusted in Christ and you look at your life and and according to the Bible, not your opinion, but according to the Bible, the fruit that you see matches what God says a true believer's life will look like. Don't come to panic by warning. Take the moment of fear, check, and then rise in assurance. If you see that your life matches, then rejoice. God loves you and he likes you. He rejoices in you. He delights in you. But we have to to see as well that the Bible gives warnings that there is such a thing as a false faith. So here's letter B. What saving faith is not Friends, the Bible goes to incredible lengths to make sure that we understand what true faith is and what true faith isn't. What true faith looks like. Here are the things that flow out of true faith. But here's false, false faith. Here's, here's what it looks like. Here are the characteristics. Here's what flows out of false faith. Listen to me. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, it's often called, I believe, greatest sermon ever preached. What's the point of it? What's the main message in the Sermon on the Mount? What's Jesus doing? Friends, he's showing the difference between true religion and false religion. True faith, and here's false faith. faith. So he'll take true faith and he'll say, here's what it looks like. Here's what true faith does. Here's how you identify it. False faith, here's some of its characteristics. Here's what flows out of it. And false faith comes in, in numerous different ways. In that sermon, he uses the illustration of the tree bearing fruit. True faith internally produces good works externally. True faith internally produces good works externally. Fact. The book of James says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? A few verses later, he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Friends, what's what's his point there? There is a kind of faith that is the same kind of mental acknowledgement that demons have. But demons have not turned a friendly heart of trust towards God. They have not embraced Jesus. They have not received Christ. They are confident of many things though, friends. Guys, do do you realize that the demons know the Bible better than you do and myself? Do you realize that the demons were there when God created the heavens and the earth? They saw it. They have no doubts about those things. Do you realize that the demons are absolutely confident that the things that the Bible says are yet to happen, they know it's going to happen. They know the character of God. These things are happening. But that kind of mental acknowledgement is not the same thing as trust. It's not the same thing as embracing Christ. They hate him. Back in the book of John, if you're there, flip to chapter 12 for a moment. There's a little bit of a discussion of true and false faith that takes place. John chapter 12. Let me show you examples of two different kinds of unbelief that happen there in John 12. First find verse 36. Jesus is speaking, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke 
and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. There's one kind of unbelief. Jump down a little farther. Let me show you a different kind of unbelief. Find verse uh, 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. You have two different kinds of unbelief there. Friends, both of them could be present in this room. In verse 37, look what you have. You have those who saw works of Christ. They saw miracles with their own eyes. They saw evidence. And yet, they refused to believe in him. Now listen to me. They knew they saw miracles. Other places in scripture show us they knew they saw a miracle. They believed that miracle had taken place. They did not believe in him. Meaning, they had not placed their trust in Christ, even though evidence is happening right in front of their eyes. See, one of the things you got to see is, friends, faith involves a decision. Faith involves your will. Faith involves your volition. Evidence of that is seen in a, a mother and father who have a terror of a kid, and they never believe the teachers who tell them how terrible their kid is. The evidence is right there in front of them, and yet they close their eyes and refuse to believe what is inconvenient. This is everywhere. And friends, there's one sense in which every single person who rejects God, who resists Him on the day of judgment will be in this camp to one way or another because the Bible says the evidence is there. God has shown it, but there is a refusal to believe the evidence. And many do this to Christ. The second kind of unbelief there in verses 42 and 43 is that there were many, watch what it said, many did believe. They were mentally convinced. But then what does it say? They did not They would not confess him. They did not turn. They did not receive him. They did not embrace him. They did not believe it was worth it. Why? Because they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And therefore, they held back. They feared man more than God. While they were convinced in their minds, they still did not A word I'm going to bring in later is they would not repent. It was not a repentant faith. Friends, this is why Romans 10 says what it does. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, justification, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. That confession with your lips. Now think about that in the context of the first century. Confessing Jesus publicly, declaring that you are a follower of Christ, Jesus is Lord, in the context of the first century when Christians were being fed to lions. Confessing Christ in that kind of, in that kind of environment was showing, uh, yeah, you've abandoned all other hope and you've placed your trust in Christ and Christ alone. If there's the chance of getting fed to lions from trusting in Christ and you're willing to do it, you're showing something there. There is is a turning to Christ that is involved in this. We see similar kinds of false faith shown to us in in the book of Hebrews. Jump to Hebrews chapter 3, if you will, for a moment there. Really uh, deep passage here that I would be greatly tempted to spend more time than what we have on. Hebrews chapter 3, find verse 12. Look what it says here. Speaking to a group gathered with the church. There's an application itself. Speaking to a group of believers or professing believers who are gathered together, look what verse 12 says. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ. If, do you see that conditional if? It's all over the Bible. That conditional if, that's another, that's another characteristic of true saving faith. It is a persevering faith. We'll see that in chapter 6. We are partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Who, who's he talking about there? Israel in the wilderness. 
So here's an example coming out of that. For who provoked him when they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, the promised land, which is a metaphor for eternal life? But to those who were disobedient, watch this last statement. So we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Did you catch that? They did not enter because of unbelief. Now think about who he's talking about there. The Israelites in the wilderness saw God work regularly. They heard the voice of God speak from heaven. They saw him at Mount Sinai. They saw the, the manna fall. They saw the pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. They were so scared by hearing God speak, they begged Moses to make it stop. Friends, there were no atheists in the Israelite camp. So what does it mean? They didn't believe. We're learning there's a difference between acknowledging God's existence and true saving faith. What, what was the root of their unbelief? What was the nature of that belief? They did not trust him. They did not trust him. Friends, there are politicians I believe exist. I don't trust them. I can stand in front of a politician and hear them say, I exist. Yup. I have authority. Yup. I'm going to lead you. Yup. Come follow me. Nope. You see the difference? There's a difference between acknowledging existence and placing your hope, placing your trust, embracing, receiving their words. There are many politicians. I believe they're speaking. I don't believe what they're saying. I don't believe the words that come out of their mouth. I know they're there. That's not the same as trusting in them. Romans 1 puts it out there. Everybody knows, but that's not the definition, the full definition of saving faith. Yes, there's an element of faith in acknowledging God's existence, but the full meaning is to trust, is to believe in Him. And can I just say that for you who have been raised in the church, You've had a, a Christian environment around you your whole life. This is one of the great dangers that you must watch. You've had the incredible blessing of being raised in an environment where you've been shown the word of God your whole life. You probably have zero doubt that God is there. But the warning that I give you is that it doesn't guarantee that you have trusted in him. It doesn't guarantee, listen to this statement, that you think it's worth it. It doesn't guarantee that you believe it's worth it to follow after him. If you doubt that it's worth it to trust, to follow him, that's not trusting him. If you would rather live like the world than bother yourself with the things of God, then think about what that is. Your heart believes that the pleasures of sin are more valuable than the rewards that God will give for obedience. God says, you leave your sin, you come obey me, I'm going to make it worth it. Do you believe him? If you believe him, it will be shown by your life. God says to you, you Christian, we, we still struggle with unbelief, even as a Christian. It's not the belief of Christ, unbelief of Christ as Savior, but we wrestle sometimes with how much it's worth it. You Christian, God says, that sin that plagues you, that sin that you still wrestle with loving, he says, leave it and I'm going to make it worth it. I'm going to give you joy. There's going to be reward. Do you believe him? Trusting him is believing when God says it's worth it. It is worth it. You may believe God is there and be convinced of all the facts of the gospel, but that doesn't guarantee that your heart has embraced Christ well, there's one more kind of unbelief that I just want to mention today and tying this into last week. And that is a misplaced object of your trust. Here's what I mean by that. We pointed out last week the danger of getting it wrong, the getting the gospel wrong, how we're made right with God. God tells us it's by faith. And if you believe that it is by works, then here's what I want you to watch. If you believe you make yourself righteous, that's not trusting Christ. That's trusting yourself. That's trusting your abilities. That's trusting your religion. 
That's trusting the work of sacraments or, or whatever it is you're trusting in there to be able to make you right with God. You got to see that you must trust in Christ. And I'll also say this. Last week I spoke of the dangers, the real danger of getting the gospel wrong. That the Bible shows many missed salvation because they misunderstood how we're made right. That by believing in their works, they miss salvation. That's a real and spiritual danger. But I also think that this is true at the same time. I don't believe the Bible shows you got to get every single detail of your doctrine right in order to be saved. Just like you can be alive, but you can have a broken back. I'd rather be alive and not have the broken back and be healthy. It's possible to have some misunderstandings of the gospel, but if someone has read the Bible for themselves and seen, I need Jesus, and they believe on the Lord Jesus, they will be saved even though they might technically be in a system that's messed up, individuals can be saved out of the system. Now, what does that mean for us? It means we still see spiritual danger. It means still as we do evangelists, sometimes we don't know if the person we're talking to is converted or not, but we do know this, they need to get the gospel right, so we're going to tell them the right gospel. We're going to show them that it comes by faith. Maybe they come, become converted for the first time, or maybe it's someone who's brought out of broken back Christian life and brought to health. But one way or the other, it matters. God shows that it does. Well, all that helps us then come to the last conclusions. Let us see what true saving faith is. True saving faith is believing that God is, obviously, but it is more than that. It is trusting. It's trusting in Him. It's trusting Him alone for salvation. It's trusting whenever He says something, it's right. True saving faith is believing what God has said. Listen, a man might get cancer, and say, I believe I'm going to be healed. I have faith. That's not faith. That's, that's strong, blind optimism. That's unfounded optimism. Because the Bible never says that. Faith is not us coming up with our own wishes and then expecting God to order the cosmos after our desires. We're not the sovereign ones. He's the sovereign one. Faith is believing what God has said. Now, a man may get cancer and say, I am confident God is going to bring good out of this. That is founded on scripture in his situation in there may not look like anything good could come out of this but he knows somehow some way God is doing good and he trusts that's believing true faith is believing that when Jesus speaks he's telling the truth that same passage in John if we had more time I'd take you to verses 47 and 48 where Jesus says this the words that I say if you do not believe them they will judge you on the last day that's pretty bold no mere man can say that kind of thing what he says is truth. Have you ever heard someone say, well, I'm a Christian, but I support gay marriage or I support abortion. The question to ask them is, what in the world do you think a Christian is? You're claiming to be a, a Christian, a Christian, and you don't believe the words that came out of the Christ mouth? That's not a Christian. You don't believe the words that come out of God's mouth. That's not what it means to have faith. Let me also add this in there. If anybody picks and chooses from the Bible what they want to believe and then rejecting some of the other stuff, that's not faith in God and that's not faith in the Bible. That's faith in yourself. Faith in yourself that I determine all reality. It's also really arrogant. Almighty me, I am the great determiner of reality and all truth of the cosmos. That's pretty arrogant. You're going to believe God? You're going to believe his word? You believe all of it. You receive all of it. And I'm going to tell you this. The more you study the Bible the more hard parts you're going to find that are a little bit of a take back and a challenge to what you believe. You go, really? Give it five years. You're going to see it. You, you believe it even when it seems challenging. You keep walking with it. The day's going to come where you think to yourself, how did I ever not believe this? How did I ever not see this? God reveals more and more. Here's another critical and true saving faith is faith in Christ. Specifically. This is an incredibly important distinction to make. I can show you two in places like back in Romans 3 and John 3, where it specifically says you must believe on the Lord Jesus. The faith that saves is faith in Christ. Now, of course, there's faith in God the Father. Jesus says that to believe him is to believe the Father because he came from the Father. But there must specifically be faith in Christ. So I want to ask this question that you need to think through. What happens if someone has faith in God generally, 
but doesn't believe in Christ specifically, will that person be saved? That question right there has led to a great deal of controversy within Christianity, but I think that so long as we understand some other truths, it becomes a lot easier. Before you even answer that question, there's another truth you need to consider, and that's this. The Bible shows it is a human impossibility for you to truly embrace God, for you to truly love God and trust in Him on your own, unless the miracle of the new birth has been worked inside of you. See, sometimes people imagine this scenario that there's a guy on the island and man, he loves God, but he's never heard about Jesus. Pastor, you're telling me that he's gonna go to hell? Here's the issue. You and I are incapable of truly loving God and wanting God. We are incapable of truly resting our trust in Him until the miracle of the new birth has been worked in us. And when does the miracle of the new birth come? How does it come? Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Friends, there is no man on an island anywhere that genuinely trusts and loves God. That miracle happens upon hearing the gospel. One of our greatest ways we misunderstand the Bible is by overestimation of our own power. It is by us thinking we can do more than we actually can. When the Bible shows you're breathing right now, thank God for that. He is holding on to you. You love God, you trust in Him right now, you didn't do it on your own. God empowered and enabled, and that came at the moment of hearing the gospel. That's what it meant when it said the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. That's not just empty words. Power happened when you heard the gospel and God awakened belief. So yeah, you got to hear Christ. You got to hear about the son of God. You must believe on Christ. There's so much more I, I would like to say in connection with this. True saving faith is a persevering faith. We're gonna see that come up in Romans 6. More true saving faith is to embrace Christ and to embrace all of him. Jesus is Lord, master, ruler, sovereign, savior, prophet, priest, king. Many are willing to accept that Jesus, the teacher. I don't buy Jesus as Lord, then you have not embraced him. To embrace Christ is to embrace all of him. But here's just one last aspect of saving faith that I'll point out for today. Do you see that everything that we have said about true saving faith could be summed up by saying just this one phrase? True saving faith is a repentant faith. If you add in just that one characteristic, it really does explain all of this. And friends, that's why many passages of the Bible put these two together, repent and believe. You'll be reading a passage like in John 3, and it says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then you'll read another place and it'll say, repent and you'll be saved. And then you could go, well, how am I supposed to make sense of this? Is that a contradiction? No, friends, if you think about it, they're two sides of the same coin. They really are. What does it mean to repent? To repent means I turn away from my sin and my rebellion and I turn to God. You can't do that if you don't believe. And true saving faith you cannot tell me, cannot tell me, you truly trust in Jesus as the sovereign ruler of the cosmos and you won't give him obedience? These two depend on one another. So if we say this statement, repentant faith, we understand the nature of true saving faith. And let me tell you another why, why, reason why this is important. One of the biggest ways that the gospel gets corrupted and mistaught is by leading people to believe that they can just basically acknowledge Jesus like demons acknowledge Jesus, and that's enough. It's not enough. A gospel without repentance is a false gospel. Beat that statement into your head. A gospel without repentance is a false gospel. And this is why we are seeing the corrosion that we are in the culture we are in. So what about you? Where are you? Where are you in relation to your faith? Let me, let me tell you what I don't want this to do. 
you sons and daughters of God. I don't want this to drive you to panic, to like live in some kind of terror. No, come to confidence in where you are in Christ. If you see the fruit that is there, but by all means, heed the warnings. Heed the warnings. Check yourself. Does your faith match what the Bible says true saving faith is? If you see that it is not, then cast yourself at his feet. Look to Christ. Receive. Embrace. Turn in the silence of where you sit right now. Cry out in your heart to God and say to him, I I need you. And there may be times in your walk where every once in a while you just kind of get a little bit of like nervousness. I don't know for sure, but you can cry out to God and say, God, I don't know if I've ever been right, but I know I want to be right now. And cry out to him. But you who have not been saved, it really is this beautifully simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But believe in him and not yourself. Embrace all of him. Trust in him. Let's pray. Oh Lord God in heaven, thank you for your grace. Every time we come to your word, we're amazed at the gospel. We're amazed at your salvation. Please, oh Lord, build us up in the knowledge of it, but then from the knowledge, bring it to change us, oh God. Father, I just want to pray that part of what happens here is that we will leave these doors and we will want to let the world know this beautiful gospel. Let them know how their soul can come to be made right with you. Use us as evangelists, as tellers of the message of Christ. We love you, God, and we pray these things through Christ's name. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's message titled Justified Part 3. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.